Welcome to Relationship University. My name is Natalie Bloom, therapist and counselor specializing in young professionals. Each episode, you'll hear uncommon conversations with real people and take away psychological insights and tools to strengthen your relationship to dating, friendships, partners, and work. But most importantly, improving the relationship you have to yourself. Thanks so much for joining me and let's get it started. In today's episode, we'll dive into the charged topic of race and racism in 2022 and learn why it affects each of our lives and how we can all help sensitive conversations become productive and empowering. We'll use evidence-based research and examples, all of which are referenced in the show notes. New research is clearly showing that people of color experience strikingly different outcomes in healthcare facilities, and that systemic inequity and interpersonal bias pose significant, even life-threatening safety risks to our fellow Americans. By personally and bravely reconciling the moral distress of racial inequity, we can take a significant first step towards aligning our actions with our values and contributing to the freedom, wealth, health, and happiness of all who call this land home. And our guest today is the closest person I've personally worked with to a modern-day Mother Teresa. But she says, you don't have to spend your whole life in service to others to spark positive change and see your own life transform. Tess Marstaller is a bedside nurse turned hospital risk manager who has been studying, volunteering, and advocating in the nonprofit and public space for over 15 years. Tess is an example of backing beliefs up with actions, yet the more that she learns, the more self-growth she's inspired to pursue. Tess received her undergraduate and graduate degrees in nonprofit management before pursuing nursing school, where her guiding interest became maternal health inequities. Tess also volunteered as a community health educator in Cameroon, Africa for over two years with the Peace Corps, where she came to understand just how much health is the key to life and a key that many never hold. In San Francisco, California, Tess has found meaning connecting with the homeless and underserved community as a nurse. In her current role, investigating events where harm could have or did occur, she brings an equity lens to the case review process, her goal being that any patient can expect a high quality outcome when they arrive sick or injured. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I think it's going to be really inspiring, deep, and eye-opening, and I hope you enjoy. So I am here with Tess, and I'm curious, why talk about race in 2021? And why are two white women talking about race? And why talk about race on a relationship podcast? Yeah, Natalie, I'm so glad you brought that up because I think it definitely is relevant to disclose what our lived experience has been. And that's something that uh, absolutely, of course, informs my views on where I'm coming with this. And It feels so critical to be largely in a listening role and to learn from the experiences of people of color. And I am so lucky to be getting 
to hear from a lot of really powerful voices of color when it comes to racial equity. I've gotten to learn from an amazing racial justice and anti-racism leader named Dante King. I've gotten insights and quotes and feedback and research of how racism has affected generations of Americans and and that that line it runs straight through to today how people are experiencing America life in America today that I may completely take for granted and not recognize were it not for them sharing their experiences but I also think that race is so important and so central to everything it's one of those things where the more you learn the more you'll just see it everywhere and the more you realize how much it's at the center maybe not for white people but certainly for people of color there's never a day that goes by where you feel like your race isn't impacting your life uh that's what i hear so not limiting ourselves to only having discussions when we're in uh, a mixed racial group but realizing that it's also important for us to reflect on what we're hearing and do the work ourselves you know we don't want to be asking people of color to do all of our work they are doing a massive amount of work and also shouldering a lot of the burden of living in what is still a very biased and discriminatory society. Um I also just wanted to mention because you brought up earlier uh that this is a relationship podcast and mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think that there are actually so many relationships that are inherent in this. I'm thinking about my relationship with myself, my relationship with my comfort um, around uh discussing race or thinking about race, my relationship with my racial identity. Some people might not think they have a relationship with their racial identity and you know be ready to do some reflecting on that um certainly when i was uh living in the peace corps in a in an african community as the only white person it sparked me to reconcile with uh my whiteness and that that is a part of my identity that wasn't a big deal to me but that's largely because it's never had to be um uh, but then i think the other thing that we can both relate to is that between covid Black Lives Matter becoming a bigger movement, uh more mainstream, many organizations, companies, you know, cities taking racism as a public health issue, racism as a uh public safety issue very seriously. I just find it coming up more in in relationships with family members, with loved ones. And so I want to get better at how to talk about race, how to make sure that I'm reducing my own implicit bias. I think it's good to kind of practice and share ideas, you know, where do you go? What what where do you take it? Do you shy away from it? You know, do you lean into it? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's really really beautiful. Um just a little bit of a reflection of what does race mean to me? Um what is my racial identity even if I'm I'm a white person? Um I think that people that are white tend to think less about race cuz we don't have to. Um or any anybody who's a person in a majority group has to do less thinking about um what it means to have a racial identity because uh it's a part of the majority it's 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 the it's the norm 
And so I think that there's some really good points. And I think for me, um, one of the reasons why I wanted to bring up um, the topic of race in at, in the Relationship University podcast is because it's been touching my life um, a lot in having discussions about race and politics with loved ones, um, noticing that some different different people in my life have different perspectives about about race and what that means to them. And um, also in my therapy practice, working with different clients, hearing that um, they're having these discussions and maybe difficult discussions or even not having discussions about race with certain family members or partners or friends, because it's such a hot button topic and it's been so politicized and polarizing. And so I think that that goes a little bit into this question about how race and talking about race and leaning into the discussion about race can be something that is constructive, something that's positive, something that we can celebrate and that we can all participate in um, versus it feeling like more divisive um, or um, like it's not doing any good. Because I think that that's that's there's some discussions right now, a lot of discussions right now around critical race theory, um, whether we really focus on race versus having a more colorblind approach, um, whether race has to do with me, whether I should be able to talk about race. So how do we come into this topic in the spirit of respecting all Americans, um, Increasing our self awareness and awareness of others, empowering ourselves and others, and lifting up the good people that we we all are inside. Because I think that everyone, no matter what your experience is, talking about race or thinking about race, I think most people are good people. People have good intentions. They want to connect with others. I think most of us want to be accepted. We want to um, have positive interactions, and and so. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Um, and especially if, if race feels uncomfortable, uh, what can be a way that we can kind of move towards understanding the importance of this discussion in a positive way versus a way that's more filled of, I should feel guilty or I shouldn't feel, I should feel like a bad person. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's so well said, Natalie. And um, I really, I appreciate that because I'm a Libra. Uh, I'm a middle child. I love my balance and my harmony. I like communicating in a peaceful way. I am not confrontational by nature. And my interest in race certainly doesn't come from a place of wanting to make anyone feel bad or guilty um, which I know certain terms like white privilege or white fragility can do. And so a lot of people just get really turned off from the conversation. But it's important to me not to get turned off because it's a matter of life and death. And, and I really don't mean that uh, dramatically. I, I think we all know that race has been something that many, many people have been killed over very directly. For example, you know, lynchings in uh, a large part of the 20th century on racial grounds. But even now, the major hospital patient safety organization called ECRI, which is not an equity 
uh, or racially um, kind of minded uh, organization, they actually just named racial disparities as the number one risk to patient safety in the hospital. Meaning that not only might you see differences in, let's say, rates of heart attacks or diabetes or COVID that brings people to the hospital, but that racial differences are actually the leading thing that puts patients at risk of having bad outcomes in the hospital. That means that we need to hold up a mirror to ourselves and take a really critical, honest look at how our systems are playing out, how our policies might have biases that we're not even aware of. So I think a part of doing that, whether on a personal or organizational basis, is acknowledging that bias and inherent racism have been baked into our country systems for hundreds of years. I mean, truly in the laws, in the in the court case precedents, you know, in media, in how our economy was set up. But we've also been, we've been indoctrinated with messages about race from a very young age. And you can see that when they do experiments on very small children, they have very clear impressions of who is valued and who is not valued in society. But if we destigmatize bias and racism being so bad, and it's either you have them or you don't, and acknowledge that we all have work to do in compensating for and unlearning some messages about racial hierarchy that have been upheld. We all have inherent bias. That doesn't mean you consented to it or that you're okay with it. But just because you didn't consent to be biased doesn't mean it's not still actually impacting uh, the decisions you make, the actions you take, and the effect that you have on very real lives. Um, and I think we'll get to a couple studies that, uh, that really exemplify that. So to me, it's about removing human suffering. I want people to feel good. Uh, but one of the ways that we can feel good is by collaborating with open hearts and open minds, not shying away, not acting as if everything is okay when it's not. Like with COVID, where what are we going to do to help the trust gap that exists, especially around people who feel like the system was not uh, was not built for them. So even though it can be jarring, it can also be therapeutic and you can t- spin your discomfort into something, uh, into something positive and, um, and productive. I'm wondering if you could speak to maybe some definitions so we can kind of get, get a handle of like what, what you mean by certain, certain terms. Yeah. I'll start with bias because really all of us are dealing with bias So when we think about bias, we're talking about attitudes and stereotypes that affect our understanding, uh, our actions and our decisions, but they're unconscious. They're blind spots. They're blind spots for you. And um, and that's why it can be painful when they're pointed out. But some studies have been done that kind of get at this. So I'll I'll tell you a couple of them. Um, One... It was a study of teachers, and researchers told the teachers that they're trying to understand how teachers detect first signs of troublesome behavior. And then they used eye tracking technology to measure the amount of time that these subjects focus their attention 
on each of four children playing and working together on a, a videotape recording. And there was a white boy, a black boy, a white girl, and a black girl. And in fact, uh, the teachers spent much more time watching the videotaped activity of the black male student than any of the others. And they missed uh, some of the troublesome behavior of some of the other students because their eyes were pretty trained on the black boy. And so this neural pathway that gets created for us from all these different messages that we receive starting at a young age is created without our consent. And they probably wouldn't actually think that they think black boys are more troublesome. But when it came to it, they just kind of had this instinct that more trouble was going to come from the black boys. And that's why these studies are great at getting at um, not what we say to be true, but what we show to be true. Um, another one is this law firm drafted a legal memo with the help of a number of lawyers. They put 22 errors in the memo. Seven were minor spelling or grammar errors. Six were substantive technical writing errors. Five were factual errors. And four were errors in analysis of the facts. So they had 60 uh, partners from 22 law firms agree to participate in this writing analysis study, and they received copies of the memo. So they were told, uh, you know, we have a third year law student, and uh, we're hoping that you can give them some feedback as they prepare to enter the legal field. So half were told that the memo was written by an African-American man named Thomas Meyer, and half were told the writer was a Caucasian man named Thomas Meyer. So 53 participants completed the task. Guess what happened? What? The reviewers gave the memo, supposedly written by a white man, a rating of 4.1 average out of 5, while they gave the memo, supposedly written by a black man, a rating of 3.2 out of 5. The white Thomas Meyer was praised for his potential and good analytical skills, while the black Thomas Meyer was criticized as average at best and still needing a lot of work. So again, it's interesting how what you go in thinking about someone, actually, it's like putting on a pair of tinted glasses. It really does color your experience of what you see. What you see is based on the light that you're that you're seeing it in. And one reason this affects us all is because we need people of all races, of all backgrounds, of all ways of thinking and life experiences to collaborate on some of the toughest issues we're facing today, like healthcare crises, like poverty, like the environment. Uh, and so if we're actually limiting people in decision-making and higher up positions to people who largely have the same background, we are actually suppressing a huge amount of human potential. Absolutely. If we turn away from noticing these unconscious or more subtle biases that we all have in us as human beings, then we miss out on or we sometimes have blind spots that cause harm. So for example, like in the, in the research with teachers, um, my guess is that those teachers are not uh, bad people if they're going into, I mean, probably most teachers are good people trying, trying to help their students. Totally. Um, I'm, I'm guessing that 
people are not wanting to be racist or wanting to be biased or wanting to um, see uh, or grade something worse because it's a person of color who wrote it. But I think that checking in with ourselves of and seeing, okay, I'm reading something that's by a person of color or a white person or an Asian person for us to see that and notice, oh, like what comes up for me around that? That creates some awareness. Is that the point? To create awareness of, oh, I don't perceive everyone to be the same. And so I'm there might be bias that's there. Is that the point? Or what do you think is the point of directing our focus towards the way that we might be biased versus saying something like, um, I'm colorblind. I I treat everyone equally. What's the point? Because I, I think that that might be some of the the arguments that 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 were that we're confronting is why focus on implicit bias? Doesn't that make us more divided? How can it help ourselves and our fellow Americans to, or it doesn't have to be Americans. It can be just any, our fellow human citizens to notice that there might be a part of us that has bias. You're right. It, it can be confusing to feel like you're getting mixed messages about, wait, so am I supposed to be thinking about race and making people's race a thing? Or am I supposed to not think about race, not, not act on racial ideas and minimize bias? Yes, minimize bias and maximize awareness. So with the study about uh, like the, the teachers uh, mostly watching the, the young black boys or the uh, lawyers rating the black law student as having less potential, I think that breaking down where those stereotypes come from and that implicit bias, we'll call it, because again, it, it, it's largely unconscious. For me, studying Black history has been so powerful. It's like as soon as you start to look at history, you realize that the way systems have treated people of color and especially Black people in America is, is so unequal, it's shocking. And as I was studying history this summer, I kept waiting for some decade where there was going to be some big change in policies or where institutions were kind of going to do like a reset of like, okay, that was then, this is now. We are very intentionally moving forward in a different way. And it felt like that never happened. Uh, there are some times where institutions like the institution of marriage are forced uh, to go a different way by a, a, a massive amount of, of pushing and fighting or the institution of voting is forced to change, uh, at least in name, the the law changes. Yeah, I'm wondering if you could if you could give us a little bit of a history lesson of some policies um, that you've studied that have created some differences and how that how that might be relevant today. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, recently in the last year, I moved to a neighborhood in Oakland called Rockridge. And I knew that Rockridge was less diverse than my uh, old neighborhood by Lake Merritt. And um, part of the reason I moved here is because it's really convenient to the train to get into the city. And I was really ashamed 
during this summer's class when I saw a lot of original zoning documents from, these are from decades ago, um, but they still very much influence the policies and the way that the neighborhoods are set up now. They use terms like invaded, infiltrated, filled with undesirable ethnic notes. And even though we're talking about decades past, we're, it, it, it is so, it affects right now. So I was talking about how uh, we have a family business in Maine that my great grandfather started. And if I think about all the ways that I have a safety net, I could lose my job at the hospital. And largely because of opportunities and uh, jobs that my family has been legally allowed to have, uh, property that we've been able to own, loans that we've been able to get, businesses that we've been able to start, colleges that we've been able to get into. I have a network around me of people who would be able to help me if, if I faced catastrophe. And I realized that that is a form of white privilege that many people of color don't have because of how they were shut out of systems. Um, for example, post-World War II, when veterans, Black veterans who fought in post-World War II came back and were denied a lot of the veteran benefits, like uh, loans on housing. The United States government poured hundreds of millions of dollars into the ability for Americans to own housing. They subsidized the market, uh, made it very easy for American families to get loans. That's how a lot of American families were able to build some of the wealth that uh our generation benefits from today, uh, the wealth of owning a home that has increased in value and whether that home is passed down or not, um, it's, it's an asset that affects, let's say, you know, my dad owns a home. He, he co-wrote the loan that I took out for college. Um, so white privilege doesn't mean that your life was easy, but it does mean that race wasn't one of the things making it harder. Even if you are a white person who has struggled tremendously, let's say you had a lot of family trauma, you are, by being a white person in America, on an escalator that is at least moving up, or at least you're on a set of stairs that's not moving down. Whereas the way that policies have been set up isn't just neutral, it is harmful and, and actively oppressing and holding black people back as if it's a downward moving escalator. And then we wonder why circumstances look the way they do. For those that are not familiar with that term of white privilege, how would you define that? And what's important about it? What's what's difficult about that term? Uh, Why might some people be turned off by that term? So uh, white privilege is generally referring to different advantages that are given to white people or people perceived as white, um, derived from the ways that history uh, was oppressive and exploitative to non-white groups. So when I talk about my great-grandfather starting this business in the 1930s, um, which is 20, 20 cabins on the coast of Maine that people can rent out, my grandfather didn't do anything wrong by starting a business. 
but I am benefiting from the wealth and assets and opportunity created by that. I had my first several jobs there. I got to work the front desk, you know, did, did housekeeping. Um, I made breakfasts. I developed usable skills there that I could then market to other jobs. So I can recognize that it hasn't been an equal playing ground. I didn't personally rig the system, but I did get ushered into this system where I'm basically moving with the tide instead of having to fight against the tide. So I can pretend that it's a colorblind world and say that I don't see color, but ultimately that can just feel really invalidating. Um, I would feel invalidated if, if someone told me that, you know, they didn't see sex or gender and they didn't think that um, there's any reason to think about any differences in how men and women um, experience the world. As a woman, I would say, so it's not for you to say that you're gender blind. Whereas I think it's not for me to say that I'm colorblind or color doesn't matter. If I don't think it's mattered, it's because I've been on the benefiting end of the spectrum. Some people can compare American history to a monopoly game in which uh, black people were not allowed to play for 250 rounds. So if you think of our 250 years of slavery, um, that's time when uh, European uh, descended Americans were generating massive amounts of wealth, wealth that had not ever been seen in uh in the West. And that wealth was generated largely because of the power engine of slavery. Uh, so literally built on the backs of black people. So if somebody asked you, if somebody said to you, we've, we've played 250 rounds of, um, you know, of monopoly, um, we've bought all the properties, we've got houses and hotels on all of them. We're all uh, carrying stacks of cash, uh, but here, come on and play, and you know maybe you'll win. To me, I would think this system is, is very rigged against me. Do I get some starting cash? You've already passed go and collected two hundred dollars mm-hmm. two hundred and fifty times. It's not really that far off in terms of uh, how much was already set up when laws in largely the second half of the 20th century started to say, okay, now you can kind of play on what we're going to call a, a level playing ground. The idea that uh, white people developed wealth in a way that now is not available to black people. So giving them loans at the rates that many families got loans a hundred years ago um, might sound like a crazy idea to some, but in some ways it would just be acknowledging what was what was kept from them. So we're still su- such a long way from really closing the gap and making it so that we can capture all of our potential and all come together to to fight against some of the very real problems um, like income inequity that that many people struggle with. White privilege is something that basically says that there there aren't like all these inherent obstacles from laws that are that laws that have been just decades ago actively excluding people of color from loans from housing from other opportunities people can still struggle at being a white person and still experience white privilege and I can give you an example from my own family my grandparents are holocaust survivors 
And so, um, you know, they, they were in the concentration camps for, for five years and they were waiting for their visas to come through. And for another five years, they finally came to the States and my, my grandmother came through New Orleans. And, um, this is, you know, after, you know, most of her family was murdered for, for being Jewish and having all that discrimination and seeing like so many of the horrors of, of humankind. And she gets onto a bus and she's sitting there in the, you know, in the front of the bus. And she notices there's all the black people are at the back of the bus. And this is around 1950. And she told me she was thinking, uh, (laughs) what does, what's happening here? I just came from the horrors, you know, in Europe and people being discriminated against and my family being killed because of their religion and, and customs. And here I'm coming to America. I thought that this was a free country. <laughs> and why are all the black people at the back of the bus? Right. So it was just so, it was so striking and puzzling. So, um, and that, you know, and then, you know, my, my grandparents, you know, came here with literally nothing, right. They, um, they had to get a loan for $10 to, to pay the rabbi for, to, to get to, for my grandparents to get married. So they didn't have $10 to their name. And, you know, they really built a life starting from zero. And so I think that this kind of brings in a little bit of um, the dialectical nature here of talking about race as a white person. Mm -hmm. So how can I be be proud of what I accomplished as a white person? So be that my grandparents were able to to create a life and live the American dream coming from nothing to something. Your your grandparents were able to buy property and have a successful life. I'm sure that your family worked hard. I know my family worked hard. And I can really be proud of my family's heritage as immigrants coming here and living out the American dream. Um, At the same time, I can also acknowledge that my grandmother, having nothing to her name when she came here, still didn't have the barrier of being a person of color. She was able to sit at the front of the bus, literally and figuratively. That color, no one knew she was Jewish by um, looking at her, right? Because she's white. She's a white Jewish uh, person. So um, she was, my grandparents were able to progress without skin color being a barrier. Um, That wasn't one of the barriers, for them. They had many other barriers, didn't, didn't speak the language, had no money, had no family, had no um, support from, from you know, any kind of lineage because their all their relatives were deceased, but they did have whiteness. Speaking of immigrants, uh, I've seen some really interesting healthcare studies that actually compare immigrants' health to uh, African-Americans' health. And they find that, um, for example, whether it's with diabetes, heart disease, or pregnancy outcomes, when immigrants first come here, their health on many of those metrics is comparable with white Americans. But within a generation their uh, their outcomes and their health has decreased. So uh, I'd love to just give a couple details from one of the 
most powerful things that I, I witnessed in uh, in my nursing school training, which was a video about a study in which racism was determined to be what puts women at risk of uh, of health issues during pregnancy, uh, during and after childbirth, and and for for newborns. And you have black women who are well-educated, even who are healthcare professionals, um, who do all the quote unquote right things that still can't even compensate for the way that, uh, what has been described to be the impact of racism living while black in America has had on their bodies. It's not race. That's the risk. It's the racism that people are living in. Actual physiological cumulative impact of, of the stress of racism that, that is experienced over a lifetime. So they showed that African immigrants to the U.S. and U.S.-born white women had similar birth outcomes, yet African-American women tended to have babies that weighed significantly less, um, other complications like preeclampsia. In fact, uh, Natalie, even though we have one of the most technologically advanced healthcare systems in the world and spend more on healthcare than any other country, the U.S. maternal mortality rate is three times higher than the average maternal mortality rate of other high-income countries with similar population sizes. And that's the overall maternal mortality rate. If you look at the maternal mortality rates and infant mortality of Black families, it's so much higher that uh, even when it's added to the national average, we are on par with Mexico and Uzbekistan, which we know are, are less advanced technologically. It really goes to show that technology can only take us so far. And if biases are infecting the way that care is given, currently a Black woman over the age of 30 is 243% more likely to die from pregnancy and childbirth related causes than a white woman. It doesn't take long being in healthcare before you start to see the trends of how outcomes are more frequently happening to people of color. Sometimes it's a language and, and communication issue. Sometimes it's a cultural issue. Sometimes when we look at statistics, like how well are we keeping patients warm during surgeries? You know, the room is cold, so you need to be taking their temperature frequently, putting blankets on them so that their body stays at, at at a healthy temperature, we might see that, well, 5% of patients are hypothermic when they come out from surgery and think, okay, well, that's not great. Let's work on that. Um, but it's not terrible. Well, if you stratify that data by race, I'm not using direct numbers, but these are real types of circumstances. It might be 2% of white patients are left hypothermic and 11% of black patients. So how do we understand that? How do we understand the discrepancy? Why are black patients getting uh, worse care than white patients or patients of color that are not African-American? That's probably um, up for debate, but I think those numbers help us recognize that there is something going on. There has been a, a cultural norm that the medical system do not trust the word or the concerns or the pain or the testimony 
of uh, people of color, maybe especially black people, the way that they do white people. So we know that uh, black people at the hospital often say that their pain is not being, it is not being treated. And we look at it. And when we look at how often our you know, are the nurses giving them their pain medication or how often are doctors prescribing powerful pain medication for them after they just came out of surgery? It's not as often. There are also actual misconceptions that used to be taught in medical school, like black bodies can handle pain differently. Black bodies don't feel pain. We used to also think that children and babies didn't feel pain. So even though the science has been corrected, there are still stubborn perceptions. Healthcare is much more white than the patients being served um, in a lot of hospitals. Um, so a difference in how people communicate, what terms people use, how people are understanding each other. Uh, you might have somebody who has a broken leg and a, a white doctor who thinks of themselves as being uh, racially equitable and not biased may have an assumption about that black man who, let's say he has dreadlocks, might have a perception that he's not going to come back for, an, for follow-up visits. So he's not going to give him a cast. Uh, he's going to give him a, a sling instead because he's he's making an assumption that he doesn't even realize he's making about uh, whether that patient would be uh, compliant with treatment or whether that patient is going to be abusive or cause a problem or whether that patient is seeking pain medication to sell on the street. And this is where perceptions that have been surrounding us for years can be really sneaky. And that's why evaluating our, our own biases as if it's really affecting people is important because it is. And where do you think those perceptions come from? Well, uh, we did an exercise in my anti-racism class this summer, and there are probably about a third of the people who identify as white, a third of the class, class who identifies as uh, of color, but not black, and then about a third who identify as black. So he asked white people to raise their hand if they knew when they were growing up, if, if they had the understanding that they were somehow better than black people to raise their hand. And we were all looking at each other on the zoom platform, which can actually be quite intimate because it's pretty close to your face and you're, you're making very direct eye contact with about, you know, 30 other people on the screen. And we all raised our hands and it was hard to raise our hands, but at the same time, not because it was like, yeah, I, I, I can't, I, 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 I can't say that I didn't get that impression when so you, all the white people, so yeah, all the white people, the white people their hand. Hand and said, yes, that is true. That is and true that I, asked, perceive, mm -hmm, that I perceive. I perceived that we, we were, you know, somehow better. And then he asked, um, black people to raise their hand. If growing up, they had known that they were somehow worse. And when I say known, I mean, you know, that they that they'd gotten that impression that that's how I'm thought of, that I am thought of as worse, that my value is less than white people. And all the black classmates raised their hand. And then he said, and for wow. people of color who are not black, raise your hand if growing up it was clear to you 
that in the in the view of the world, you were better than black people, but not as good as white people. Wow. And folks from Hispanic backgrounds, Asian backgrounds, Middle Eastern backgrounds raised their hand. And it was, I mean, we all couldn't look away, uh, but it was, it was heartbreaking. And it was just this, this really profound moment of recognizing that, yes, none of us have escaped this. And now we're all colleagues, but look at what, look at what shaped us. And that has such long-term impacts. And so the doll study that you were mentioning earlier, it was originally done in the 1940s by Kenneth and Mammy Clark to investigate how young Black children viewed their racial identities. It's been redone a number of times. One of the recent ones is by um, a team that included Anderson Cooper. He wasn't the one who designed it, but he, he played a lot of it out. And so they took children, young children, I think they were like, some of them were three to five. And then there was an older group that was like eight to 10. And they showed them cartoon dolls of five different colors going from very pale skin to very dark skin. And these kids were also a range of of skin tones. So they asked the kids to point to the smart doll, the dumb doll, the nice doll, the mean doll, the good looking doll, the ugly doll, the doll you'd like to have as a classmate, the doll that the other kids like, and it was it was really hard to watch these videos because especially the younger kids were so clear. I mean, they didn't miss a beat for the smart, good-looking, nice doll that people would want as a classmate. They were almost exclusively pointing to the white doll. And that was white children, brown children, black children. Wow. All pointing to the white doll saying, that's the doll that's good. That's the that's the right doll. That's the doll that you would want to be, that teachers would like, that parents would like, that's pretty. And pointing to the darkest doll as the dumb doll, the mean doll, the ugly doll. Kids are a reflection of our messages, but they also don't have the filter of what is right or acceptable to say. So this is such a powerful reflection because they'd been able to absorb and and figure out uh, how people are perceived in in even like three to four years of being around people. And it was so clear. They weren't like, what do you mean? All the doll. It was like, oh, yeah, of course, the the, the, the pretty doll, that would be the white doll. And you're like, you know, you're thinking, no, you're you're beautiful. You're a a little black girl, you are beautiful. I want you to feel beautiful. But we have to ask ourselves, do the, do the messages that they get surrounded by and how they're talked about, how their parents are talked about, how they see their parents moving about the world, being looked at, being treated. What they see on TV. What they, exactly. What, what they, they see, see on media. People, yeah, of people who look like them what roles they're in. Who's the main character yep. in a movie? Yep. Who's the criminal in the movie? Exactly. What are the exa- what are the examples and stereotypes that are formed by our society? It can break your heart, but it can also really make you want to contribute to a world in which black children do not already feel like they are starting out 
from so far behind being valued and uplifted and celebrated. Right. So how do we negotiate this if we see, let's say that we see um, a black child playing with a white child and they're getting along great? Or if we see um, maybe someone might say, you know, I have black friends or I have black relatives or I've dated people of color, um, people that say I I love everybody um, or kind of echoing some of the messaging from Martin Luther King of you know, judge someone by the quality of their character rather than the color of their skin. So how do we negotiate some of these studies that are showing these biases in kids that are showing um, when uh, pregnant women are being researched uh, f- for their health um, throughout their pregnancy when, when we, when we, realize that racism when everything else is controlled is the reason why there's higher mortality rates. How do we negotiate this thing of, um, on one hand, like, isn't everything okay? I can have, I can be a good person. I can have black people or people of color in my life. You can see kids playing together. Everything seems fine. But then on the other hand, we see implicit biases we see internalized racism, it sounds like, for the those little kids that somehow they know that there are these biases that are happening. How does it all come together? It seems really complicated. Yeah, it, it's, it's true because in certain ways, we don't want it to be about race. And in other ways, I am encouraging myself to realize that it is about race much more so than I would have acknowledged and, 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 and was shown earlier in my life. I try and be friendly to everyone. And I think that um, that's a great way to be non-racist, but I think it goes further than that. And so when you hear the term anti-racist, to me, that really means what are you doing to help compensate for the hundreds of years in which people of color weren't allowed to be part of the system because there's so much to so much to undo so much so much to make up for that not contributing to the problem is a good start but it's not it's not chipping away at the problem that is still persisting which is this legacy of of bias and racism that is very alive and well today. So I'm just thinking of how um, when I buy flowers from the Hispanic woman on 24th Street in the Mission who sells them out of buckets um, outside a bank, I'm friendly to her and I you know I enjoy it. I try and speak a tiny bit of Spanish, and it's a nice interaction. And when the black facilities worker at my hospital comes and helps fix my desk in my cubicle, I'm really friendly to him. And I, you know, shake his hand and and make sure that I am treating everyone in a way that I can feel is in touch with my integrity, acknowledges every person's humanity and equality and value. I want people to feel good. But what am I doing to try and help make sure that that black staff member isn't going to be passed by for a raise or a promotion because of how the interview process is inherently biased 
Or what am I doing to make sure that the woman who's selling flowers out of buckets would be able to get a job with benefits, including paid time off for maternity leave? These are questions that I ask myself about what am I doing to help even the playing ground for my community? Uh, Because being nice doesn't help them gain the opportunities that I've already benefited from. Coming up with actions so that in your day-to-day life, you are encouraging your kids to make interracial friendships, but you're also thinking about um, making up for what's happened in the past. So an example that's coming to mind is that for decades, um, I think until the 60s, Black people were not allowed to go into swimming pools. And so after segregation, Black people were largely still kept out of swimming pools. White people wouldn't swim in them. They would dump gasoline in them. Black people got terrorized for trying to enter swimming pools. And so a lot of Black kids grew up not getting to take swimming lessons or even be part of swimming because they were not welcome in swimming pools. Um, This is something Mr. Rogers actually did an amazing episode uh, partially on by inviting the mailman to take off his shoes, the black mailman in the show to take off his shoes and put his feet in the, in the little kiddie pool alongside Mr. Rogers, you know, to try and try and normalize and destigmatize us being side by side in every single circumstance. So it wasn't normal. I think, right. Exactly. So so I think that that's maybe there's something kind of interesting of um, maybe today we, we might assume, well, why are we focusing on this? This is normal. Of course, of course, black people and white people and people of other people of color are equal. That's normal. But very in very recent history, it it was not normal. We are millennials. Um, in our parents' generation, it was wow. It was abnormal for a black person and a white first person to be dipping their feet in the pool next side by side. Like yeah. that was a big moment. Is that what I'm hearing? Absolutely. And I mean, yeah, in my in both of my parents' lifetimes, there were still, you know, blatant lynchings that were happening against black people with absolutely no prosecution. The trickle down effect on the culture lasts a lot longer than the law itself. So yes, what used to be very normal may not be normalized by the law anymore, but it is certainly taking time for new norms to really trickle down and for us to let culture, whether that's owning a home, um, getting a loan, starting a business, uh, being college educated, catch up so that people our age are actually standing on even ground. I think that when we talk about should we be talking about race, I've also heard that you know, race is a social construct. It has no biological definition. And that's certainly true. Race is a construct and it has been largely manipulated uh, to accomplish certain political goals. If you look at the census, which races are listed on the U.S. census going back as far as the census does, which is certainly more than 100 years, um, every 10 years, it's, it's a different list because they're including different groups differently. And if you look at who's designing that and what their interests are, you realize that, yes, um, what what are the dif- different definitions of the races? It's certainly murky. Um, 
But religion and national borders are also constructs that humans have created. It doesn't mean that the outcomes of how those constructs are upheld and how policies use those constructs um, to, you know, carry things out and and set things up and benefit or 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 harm other people isn't very real. I mean, people of Afghanistan are having an extremely different experience than people of America, even though we created nations. There's no real such thing as a nation. We're all on planet Earth. Um, in the same way, we created race, yes, but that doesn't mean that the impacts of it have not been extraordinarily real and extraordinarily harmful. Absolutely. And I wonder if like coming back to an individual level, because uh, we're, we're in Relationship University podcast right now, and I'm curious a little bit about um, how understanding and learning about and being curious about these differences, it could be as a person of color, but I'm thinking maybe as a white person, how gaining awareness about the differences as a white person, how does that, how is that helpful or constructive? And how does that tie into white privilege? Because I think some people might feel like this is a little bit emphasizing these differences. Um, Maybe it makes me feel, maybe if I'm really honest, I might feel some shame or I might feel some guilt. Does being guilty help? But or what what's what is the point though when it comes to our relationship to ourselves and also our relationship to our our friends, our partners, our colleagues, our fellow Americans? How is it helpful in our relationships to be aware of these differences? Yeah. I think at first it can feel like there's this major downside of um, being uncomfortable. When I've taken this class on American history that really showed the Black experience, I thought, well, no wonder some of this isn't taught in school. Uh, when you're in school, you're you're too young for it even to be appropriate to show how gruesome our American history is. So it seems like there should be an adult cl- an adult history class offered to everyone when we are maybe more ready to even synthesize some of these painful realities about our country's past, which isn't to say that we should be ashamed to be Americans, but just like we want to understand what is the source of cancer? How does it work? Where does it come from? How does it infect other cells and organs? And what are the ways that we can mitigate it and uh, rid ourselves of it? I'm interested in thinking about racism like that. You know, where does it where does it come from? Uh, it's certainly not unique to uh, the United States. That said, the United States did start making policies and have the system of slavery uh, in a way that was defined along racial lines pretty differently and much more starkly than other parts of the world like the Mediterranean had. So not being ashamed 
but being curious. I think that for me, there's been this temporary loss of comfort as I connect the dots about how discrimination became baked into our culture, into our laws. Um, when I listened to, I listened to the 1619 project that was a New York Times podcast um, about slavery and the aftermath of slavery, or the uh, the film Thirteenth on Netflix that talks a lot about how slavery turned into something else that turned into something else that turned into something else, you know, turned into sharecropping that turned into paying for prisoner labor, uh, which is still something we have today and can be seen as a way that Black Americans are still being oppressed in ways that stem from slavery, uh, that, you know, you really can connect the dots. This veil starts to be lifted. And if you realize how many layers of the veil there are, uh, and that we've been shielded. I think, especially living as a white person, I'm just shielded about the the human toll that oppression has taken on so many in our country. And I can no longer consent to living with the same amount of um, naivete as I did before. And I now feel this sense of urgency that has overcome my resistance to talking about it and thinking about it. Um, and also my insecurity that maybe I'm going to talk about it in the wrong way. I'm going to say the wrong thing. I'm going to say black when I should say African-American. So it's not comfortable. But I think that if we can go through this metamorphosis in recognizing that race is important to think about because it's having real impacts and we do care about reducing human suffering and that we can't do that if we don't acknowledge some of the root causes of that suffering. Um, that really builds your strength and resilience and it readies you to be part of making the change. And I think it also really helps you bring to your conversations and your relationships actually more of a sense of calm. Because I think that talking about race can be very triggering. It can make people very anxious. And you might think that the way to get rid of that anxiety is to change the subject. Let's not talk about race. That may be a temporary fix. But overall, our anxieties, our, our deepest challenges uh, and tensions as a country are not going to be put aside forever. And so being willing to have tough conversations to process how do you, your family, your, your partner, your children, your parents, your colleagues feel about this. Uh, Maya Angelou says that uh, history, despite its wrenching pain, cannot be unlived. But if faced with courage, need not be lived again. And I love that mm -hmm. because when I learn about history, it is wrenchingly painful and I wish it could be unlived. But if it can't, the next best thing is to make sure it's not being ongoingly lived or isn't being set up to be lived again by the next generation. Yeah, that's really well said. And I think that there's there's something um, about looking at these topics, trying to learn more about these topics. And also, I know we're, we're, again, recognizing and being in full disclosure that we're two white women talking about race when we're when we're around other people of color to try to, you know, ahead of time, you know, just be aware that there is this long history that is impacting our fellow Americans and to be curious about and to learn 
from other people and in their own voice and in their own experience, it helps us to connect and to come from a place of humility of, I don't know what it's like to be a person of color, which I don't. I don't know what it's like to come from, let's say, Asian descent. As a therapist, it's my responsibility to keep learning and building upon cultural competency. So to learn about different cultures, to learn about factors that might be uh, impacting the therapy clients that I'm working with. However, as much as I learn, I'll never know what it's like in the lived experience and the felt experience of someone from, that comes from a different culture. So when I'm working with people, I might say something like, I'm going to really do my best to do my research in learning as much as I can. And I've done my research in trying to um, be culturally competent. However, we come from different cultures. Could I? And I might have gaps where I don't fully understand something or I might misinterpret something. If you could please let me know if I'm not fully getting it and help me make this completely um, coming from your experience. And I might, I will probably get it wrong at some point. And having that kind of humility opens up the door for saying, I'm, I'm going to take responsibility um, for not putting the burden all on you to tell, to teach me about your culture because you're paying me, right, for therapy. So I should be competent. I should be knowing as much as I can. At the same time, I don't have the, I don't have, I walk with different skin. I walk with a different cultural background. And I think that at the end of the day, even leaving leaving race aside, I think we all want to be seen and understood for who we are, where we come from, our family history. Um, we want to share. Sometimes we, we want to have someone listen to our experience. And we, and we feel really connected when someone really listens and really asks and do- doesn't assume that they know what my life is about, but are but pe- my friends that are invested in just learning about what is it like to be Natalie, right? What is it like living in my body? I feel so good when someone can reflect back, can ask and then reflect back and and tell me that they really understand my experience. And I think that that's, something that's really powerful for what we can do and why why um, it might be important to learn about Black history um, in schools. It doesn't have to be it. And also, you know, there's open for debate. I don't want to, I don't know if I want to, you know, open that can of worms. I know it's a very hot topic right now of what we teach in schools, which could maybe be for another time. But I, I can just say from my own experience it's been something that's helped me to connect with lots of different people to be able to learn about the history. And um, it helps me to connect with other people. And I think that that at the end of the day, that's what we want. And I think that I think most people, including teachers that have bias, or I mean, teachers, I mean, we all have bias, right? It could be teachers, it can be doctors, it can be nurses. It could be anyone. We all have some bias. And I think that, I think what, what some of the things I'm hearing, Tess, is that having awareness of, of the history and things that are, that have happened in policy and that, that are, that are going on through the research and through people's lived experience, um, 
can help us to see wherever we are in life. Um, can I be more aware of the experience of someone who has a different has comes from a different background? And is there something that I can do within the context of my life that can help to undo or progress our society so we can all live in a more equal and free uh, and happy and healthy society? Yes, absolutely. That really does tie it back beautifully to relationships. We all do want to be heard and understood and seen and acknowledged. And sometimes the dominant culture um, gets more recognition and airtime than other cultures. So we need to take it upon ourselves to make sure that um, in our life and with our friendships and conversations, we're giving airtime and recognition to other backgrounds, other experiences. Um, and I think that learning about history, learning about how the impacts of history are being felt today is really important. And I think also in our relationships, the ability, like you said, to show humility and just be open to asking asking questions. I think that when we're with members of what we consider our in-group, um, either racial in-group or national in-group, we associate them with comfort, friendliness, uh, feeling relaxed and secure. And as humans, it's easy to associate people who are part of perceived outgroups with negative feelings like nervousness or insecurity or anxiety. Um, and so I think that pushing the boundaries of our comfort zone in so many aspects of life, but definitely when it comes to race and bias and, and possibly our own discomfort with talking to people who are different from us or talking about people who are different from you, thinking about them is to push yourself, ask them, you know, ask them what they did over the holidays. If you don't know what holiday they celebrate, ask them. If you don't know if they, you know, what they and their family make for Thanksgiving, ask them. I don't want to not ask just because I'm uncomfortable. So reaching out, extending, extending the hand saying, I acknowledge that your past has been different. And I acknowledge the ways that there's been generational passing down of, of traumas and inequities that are different than mine. But I also acknowledge that here we are today, working, living, uh, communing side by side. Who is it that we want to be and what kind of world do we want to be contributing to in relationships like this one? And this is a very special relationship, Natalie. So uh, I am so glad that we've gotten to have this conversation. Me too. Thank you so much, Tess. And is there anything else that you think would be important to share or something to end on for today? You know, I'm really looking forward to putting some of the links and studies and resources in the show notes. And I, I just encourage people to take a look. I have just benefited so much and, and feel lucky to the, the organizations, the leaders who are putting in, uh, putting in their uh, blood, sweat, and tears to teaching white people like me how to be uh, better allies and advocates, opening my eyes. And uh, so I just want to honor them, acknowledge them, and uh, encourage everybody to look up uh, some of these books or other books and share something that you've learned here today or that this has sparked you to think about. 
Thank you so much, Tess, for all the good work that you're doing. And it's been such a pleasure. Until next time. Thanks so much for listening. I think we've been extremely lucky to get some thought-provoking information from Tess about racism in America, and I really do appreciate that you chose to listen. Not everyone would take the time to care, to learn, and to reflect on our own personal relationship to race. And if you'd like to connect with Tess, you can reach her via email at tmarstoller at gmail.com. That's spelled T-M-A-R-S-T-A-L-L-E-R at gmail.com. This has been so awesome and feel free to follow me on Instagram at relationship podcast. And if you found this to be insightful or helpful, please share this with someone you think would find this to be interesting and beneficial. My name is Natalie Bloom, remembering that through awareness of self and others comes greater connection. Until next time. I hope you had a great time listening. Again, just a friendly reminder that the podcast is for informational purposes only. Relationship University is not intended to be a substitute for psychological, psychiatric, or medical advice, or diagnosis and treatment, or actual psychotherapy with a therapist or psychologist. If you're desiring or needing mental health support, please seek the advice of your medical provider or other qualified mental health professionals. If you think this may be a mental health emergency, please call your doctor or 911 immediately or go to your local emergency room. Life can be challenging sometimes and everyone goes through tough things. And I hope you're seeking professional support from your own personal therapist if that's something that you think would be beneficial to your life. I appreciate your time to listen to this and take care.
Thank you.